You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Welcome to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. We're here today to talk about our text for this week, which is Acts 13, verses 1 through 4. To go along the sermon title is The Church Sent. So last week was The Church Deepened. This week is The Church Sent. And what the podcast is going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, is sort of a hybrid integration of talking about the text for that week and also unpacking the five-year vision plan that we have, and particularly the discipleship strategy part of that. Uh, So each campus pastor taught campus-specific things on that first Vision Sunday, and then the second Vision Sunday was Mike simulcast out to all campuses about the five-year vision of the church. And um, we just want to work through that together, and I think this is a great text to talk about uh, what a healthy congregation looks like as that's part of our five-year vision. So I'm going to read the five-year vision to you and then going to dive right into our text for today. And what's really on my heart is this transition between mere biblical knowledge, sort of what we would call maybe a trivia approach to the Bible, and that's that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to know stuff and facts and bits about the Bible. But how do we take that and leverage it to learn concepts about the Bible that can then be the um, the things that cause value shifts in us that can make us more like kingdom people, can conform us more to the image of Christ? So uh, we do want to say, yeah, no facts about the Bible. But let those facts then be extrapolated into the great truths of God and the great truths of the gospel that compel us to the work of disciples making disciples so that we can truly become disciples of Jesus who make disciples with Jesus. And so how are we going to do that? Or what's it going to look like in the end we pray in the five-year vision? And here it is. In response to God's leading, we will accomplish 10,000 disciples making disciples relationships as a result of initiating 500,000 gospel conversations in which we will share the whole gospel with our neighbors and nations. And we will create a church multiplication movement that results in 100 healthy congregations in Middle Tennessee and beyond. So today, I mean, well, we just see all three of these in our text today. Um, and, and we can sort of take them in reverse order and look at how the healthy congregation and what they're doing in the present, at least in our historical present of this text, and then look back at how the disciples making disciples in the gospel conversations is what got them to this point of being healthy and being a sending church to send out missionaries. And that's going to be a part of how we equip as Brentwood Baptist. We want to be a people of mission journeys, yes, but we want to be a people of missionary sending so that we're constantly doing what our people here in this text are doing. So keep that in mind, disciples making disciples relationships, gospel conversations, and then healthy congregations. So here's our text, Acts 13, verses 1 through 4. Now in the church at Antioch, and I won't read this to you every week, so don't worry. I'm not going to come on here and read of 20 minutes of Bible. Not that that would be a bad thing, but that's not, um, that's not the plan. But today's a really short text, so I will read it in its entirety, minus the names. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and then we get the five names, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. 
So what, what's the obvious about this? The obvious is that we have a faithful congregation here, a faithful community of believers in the midst of worship and fasting, um, making God's name known and being thankful and bringing glory to God's name and then keeping themselves spiritually open through the discipline of fasting. And the Holy Spirit tells them, set apart Barnabas and Saul. So they finish, they fast, they pray, they lay hands, and then they commission them out to do the missionary work. So the way I'm going to transition this is to say there's an interesting figure in all of this, and that is Manain. He's one of those five names that are listed there. And maybe what's more famous is his close friend, Herod the Tetrarch. So we see there Manain, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And so that Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas, who would be the uh, key figure in the Gospels with respect to marrying his brother's wife, Herodias, and then John the Baptist rebuking him for that and calling him out for that to the point where Herod jails him and then ultimately beheads him. And Herod was the one that sent Jesus off to Pilate to try to get him crucified. So he's a real enemy of the faith, a real enemy of the gospel. So unpacking some of his life for our people, and yet his close friend, Manane, was apparently a faithful member of this Antiochian congregation who's doing the first missionary sending at least the first non-regional missionary sending because i mean jesus commissioned out his 70 and so forth so it wasn't as if people were never sent in the history of the scriptures but this seems to be the first time they were sent in the context of what we might consider modern missions um, sort of the global outreach disciple all people's mentality so Manane and herod diverge but this close friend language in the greek uh, is about child child rearing so they were brought up together they were they were school buds, I guess would be the way to say it, and yet their lives diverge where one is actually participatory, uh, a key figure, approximately, so I mean close to it. I mean, we're all participatory in our sin that we get Christ killed. But Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, was um, there in the moment, a key figure in the immediate context of crucifying the physical Lord. And then Manane, his friend, apparently submitted to that Lord. So one crucified him, one submitted to him, became the disciple. So it was really interesting to look at that contrast and say, uh, what happened? What brought about this submission? Or at least uh, what brought Manane to this point? And to answer that, I jump back to Acts 11, the church deepened sermon, which was taught last week. But what a stunning text to come to understand the sovereignty of God here. And we begin in verse 19. And it says, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So think about how mundane this decision is in terms of where Stephen comes from. Um, in Acts 6.1, it talks about the widows being neglected in the daily distri- distribution of food. So Acts, this is Acts chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 2. A complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called the whole group of the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables, but carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well-attested, full of the Spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. So while the task is necessary and good, Peter says uh, we need to be about preaching the word of God to people. 
And so one of those men is Stephen. And this is where Stephen pops up, becomes a deacon, becomes prominent in the local church. And then he is killed there in Jerusalem. He's stoned to death and he preaches that beautiful sermon, preaches that beautiful sermon in Acts 7. And that sermon uh, was in the context of him being martyred. And that martyrdom triggered a season of intense persecution in Jerusalem. Because of that intense persecution, people were scattered out of Jerusalem and some of those people ended up in Antioch. All right. So these guys end up in Antioch and mostly were teaching Jews. But beginning in verse 20, there were some of them men from Cyprus and Cyrenae who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. So mainly to Jews, but then these guys start preaching to the Greeks and they start preaching the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus hand was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So now get the full flow of the story here and all of this in light of the sending that happens in chapter 13, where Barnabas and Saul are commissioned and sent out. And also in the context of Manain, who took a divergent path from Antipas, uh, from Herod, who who instigated the crucifixion of Christ, whereas Manain submitted to the glory of Christ. So we have missionary sending that stems from a mundane decision in many ways, a simple decision of Peter to say, we don't have time to feed the widows and care for the widows well. Appoint some men to do it. That decision leads to Stephen being appointed, made deacon, becoming prominent, ultimately martyred. He preaches his sermon, Acts 7. Uh, Stephen's martyrdom triggers a season of persecution and uh, just particular gumption to persecute the followers of Christ, which causes an exodus from Jerusalem. Some people land in Antioch, end up preaching to Greeks who probably were just more responsive to the gospel um, in that location. Uh, The numbers are so dramatic that the Jerusalem church hears about that, sends Barnabas. Barnabas says, I'm going to go get Saul, bring Saul, and then they teach for a year. And then out of that, we get the fasting, we get the worshiping, and we get the missionary sending of chapter 13. So let's look at it in reverse. What is a healthy congregation? Well, clearly here, a healthy congregation is one who's fasting, searching, and missionary sending, and fast, fasting and searching. It's one who's fasting and worshiping, and one who is missionary sending, uh, one who has a heart for preaching the gospel to others and making disciples of other people. Where does the disciples making disciples happen and the gospel conversations happen? Well, that's what was going on for a year uh, before this time. So presumably everybody in this church in Antioch were pagans. And Antioch was a prominent town. It was a port town because it had water access to the Mediterranean Sea. So it was an important city. And uh, they had a lot of commerce there. They had a, a good economy there. They had a lot of politics, a lot of philosophy there. A lot of religion there, a lot of paganism there, temple worship, licentiousness in that worship to excite the gods and grant the gods favor. And then here comes the Cyrenaeans and the Cyprians 
come preaching the gospel of Jesus after fleeing the persecution triggered by Stephen's martyrdom and Peter's decision to preach the gospel. And uh, you, you end up with this. So we have disciples making disciples because this is what Barnabas and Paul did for an entire year to a bunch of people who were pagans. And then a year later, presumably it may have been longer than a year, but it was at least a year of teaching. And then now you get missionary sending. And then all of that would be gospel conversations. What did they do when they got to Antioch, the Cyprians and the people from Cyprus? Um, I mean, the Cyrenaeans and the people from Cyprus, when they got to Antioch, they preached the gospel. They had gospel conversations and these Gentiles converted. God had prepared their hearts to hear it. And then what did Barnabas and Saul do when they got there? They taught for a year. Those are gospel conversations, making Christ's name known, being faithful to the gospel story being faithful to their own story of what God had done in their life. Because we see Paul's testimony, Peter's testimony, and so forth throughout the uh, other letters in the New Testament. And we also see the theology throughout the other letters in the New Testament. So those are the sorts of things that Paul and Barnabas were probably doing at this church in Antioch. And after at least a year of that, they now come to this worshiping and fasting congregation who then prayed, laid hands, and sent them off on the missionary work. So, we want to be ascending church. We want to be ascending people. Um, we want to send people out to be disciples of others and to grow the kingdom as they reproduce their personal faith. In our groups, we as group leaders want to send out people that we've apprenticed, people that we've discipled on how to teach the Bible to others so that they can launch their own groups and have a dramatic outreach to others that we won't be able to get to. So we want to reproduce our personal faith. We want to reproduce our groups. And then lastly, we want to reproduce our congregations. And that's the 100 healthy congregations here. And so how do we do it? And this is why I love being in the teaching ministry of the church. It's why I love being in the groups ministry of the church. Is because, like I mentioned earlier, we are where the rubber meets the road. We can go deep in our groups in a way that can't be done elsewhere. And just like Barnabas and Saul, we teach for a year we teach for years in and years out, and we teach the gospel. Um, we teach the gospel first and always. And in doing so, we can trust that the Spirit is working to bear the fruit of missionary sending. So we don't just try to impose, um, you, you want to go do foreign missions, so get out of here. We're going to send you out. Uh, that's not really the way it works, was it? Uh, what really happened is they all shared in community for a year at least, if not longer, teaching the word, learning gospel, understanding the scriptures, praying, fasting, keeping themselves spiritually sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, who then prompted that they should be set apart and sent out for a particular work to expand the gospel, the gospel to all peoples. So we as group leaders have a huge role in this because we're the ones who can teach this text. We're the one that can teach the text in the deepest way to our people. And that would be an example of how I would do it, starting with Menane and Herod. Just biblical data, bits of information, which I'm not against. Uh, we None of us should be against. But to think that because we know biblical facts that we necessarily are disciples or we're necessarily ready to be disciple makers or that we're necessarily faithful kingdom people just because we know a lot of facts about the Bible is just not. I mean, it's just false. Those facts ought to lead to concepts and truths about the person and work of the triune God, 
which then compel us to be imitators of that reality and to be faithful kingdom people on the kingdom mission of expanding it for the sake of God's glory. Um, I was just teaching the other day in the context of James talking about the demons. I mean, even the demons know God and they tremble. And so what's the difference really? I mean, what's the difference between a Christian and a demon? Well, it's not, it's not merely facts, right? Because the demons know all the facts. Uh, the demons have a good theology. The demons have a good um, uh, Bible. I mean, they, they know what the Bible says and they know Christ's identity. The difference is they don't submit to it like we do. They don't give Christ glory in the triune Godhead glory for it. And so we want to be a people who can take the facts of this text that can take the bits of information in the scripture, extrapolate that into concepts for our people, for them to discover their values, their worth, their why, you know, W-H-Y, their why for disciple making. And then they can be about the business of kingdom expansion and making disciples of all peoples. Uh, there's a number of other things that are interesting in this text. Certainly the worshiping and fasting part of being a disciple maker is that we are modeling the disciplines for our people. Fasting is one that's near and dear to my heart because it's what I use to jumpstart my faith. If I feel it lacking or feel dry spiritually, that I will start fasting. And I struggled with it for a long time because it felt like it was an ultimatum. I only thought about fasting when I wanted something and it's okay, God, if you, if I fast, you'll give me this, right? Was sort of my mentality on it. And I think even had I done it for the wrong reasons, I think God would have been faithful to it because um, through that I would have been submissive to the gospel. I would have been more sensitive. So even with the wrong intentions, I think God could have worked something grand out of it. But what I came to learn is that the disciplines really feed into one another. So for me, what fasting does is it triggers prayer for me. So as I fast and then a hunger pain hits, then it's like, oh, man, I need to be praying. As I start praying, I'm spiritually aware and sensitive. The Lord will bring things to mind, people, theological issues, uh, what have you. And then from those prayers, I say, man, I'm starting to reflect theologically over things, over these people, over some doctrine. And from there, that drives me into the scripture to say, what does the Bible say about these things? How does God reveal himself to me in the scriptures concerning these things, which then leads to, of course, application, scripture, memory and the rest. So for me, fasting is a way to jumpstart it. So I share that with all my groups and uh, it doesn't have to be that for them. It might be silence and solitude that starts it. It might just be getting in the word that starts it. I don't I don't know what it is, but we need to be modeling the concept and habits of dis of fasting type disciplines for our people. We need to be modeling the spiritual disciplines for our people and encouraging them to develop in those. Uh, because how else are they going to be open and sensitive? How else are they going to hear the Holy Spirit saying, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, right? So we need to be doing those things that keep us open to the promptings and movements of the Spirit in our life. Another thing worthy of mention in here is that it talks about prophets and teachers. Uh, I do think, at least grammatically in, in this sentence, those are distinct roles, prophets and teachers, not to say that some teachers don't prophesy and some prophets don't teach but that is to say that they are distinct roles here even though they can be shared uh and and prophecy was one even up and through last year gave me a lot of trouble i only understood prophecy in terms of like a um, isaiah or something like that who would prophesy some future event for the people of god which at that time were the jews and it was binding upon everyone and it 
um, ended up in our canon, in our Bible. And then that's binding upon Christians globally. But particularly in the New Testament, you can see it even a little bit to the Old Testament. Like Jonah was sent to Nineveh, right? In the New Testament, it's even more specific where these prophets were generally for a particular community. I think in terms even of Agabus, who shows up throughout the the book of Acts, particularly in context of Paul, he does predict the famine for the region, but then he predicts Paul being jailed and imprisoned uh, through the, the Roman Empire. But the prophets were for specific localities. So I think prophecy in the New Testament is not about a biblically binding global reality for the church. So in other words, if somebody gets a prophecy in their local congregation in Australia, I don't think that's binding upon me here. That's something for their community. So in that context, prophets are people who are especially sensitive to movements of God in their local context and local fellowships. But also within that notice is that a prophet should not be interpreting their own prophecies. I think New Testament prophecy is such that they just lay the prophecy on the table for the community to then interpret how it ought to manifest in the world. So I think the Middle Tennessee Initiative is a good example of this. Mike, uh, through much prayer, much discernment with the regional campus pastors and so forth, comes up with this Middle Tennessee Initiative that we ought to incorporate into our evangelism, essentially the teaching of James and Paul, uh, these good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do, that through healthcare, education, and poverty can be a segue into gospel conversations that as we meet the needs of people physically, we're going to also be able to meet the needs of people spiritually. Beyond that, he really didn't say much or do much about it. Uh, he just sort of said, all right, here's where the Spirit is guiding us as a people, gave it over to the community of faith, and all sorts of stuff has happened out of that. Uh, I think about... Uh, education. You have Avenue South partnering with elementary schools. Likewise, at the other regional campuses, partnering with elementary schools. Or you think about the preschool ministry at Woodbine and the outreach is doing there in the community. You think about poverty with Room at the Inn. You think about Woodbine and the apartment complexes where a lot of immigrants are ending up in, as they come into Nashville. Um, any number of other our partners that we work with and the um, Engage Middle Tennessee Day, we do cross campus. You think about health care, the mobile dental unit. Orphan care is now a part of that too, which could be a, a part of the others as well. But I think about Station Hill and some of the orphan initiatives they have, whether it's uh, helping uh, parent children, giving children a home for a short season while parents get on their feet, and then they can return back to their biological family, or maybe sometimes it's adoption for the long term. But either way, all of these great community works are leading to gospel conversations and are leading to disciple makers as we do it together as a congregation, as we do it with our groups. So it's, it's really exciting to see all that. And I think that's a good example of how prophecy in the New Testament probably worked. Now, we as group leaders can help our people think through this by offering up a spectrum to them. So just like draw a line on the board and on one end, write cessationist and on the other end, write continuationist. And so a cessationist would be one who says that the gifts have ceased, the miraculous gifts anyway, have have all ceased. And then the other end of the spectrum would be to say they're all active. In the middle of the spectrum would be different views that say, well, some of these are, are still in play today, 
It just depends. Uh, maybe contextually they're in play. So if the Lord needs to heal somebody through somebody in this community for the gospel, that'll happen. But it's not something that we should expect across the church wholeheartedly. Others would say things like miracle healing and prophecy are done with. Those were only for the apostolic era. So in other words, when Peter goes from the Jews at Pentecost speaking tongues there, Oh, how do, how do we know this Messiah is true and this gospel is true? Well, we're speaking your language and we don't know it. And then he goes down to um, meets with some Samarians and they do the same thing when Peter lays hands on them. Oh, wow, we get the same gospel that was promised to the Jews. And then likewise with Cornelius. So you um, you get these miraculous signs because the extraordinary nature of the message, whereas now we have the scriptures, so we don't need those miraculous signs anymore. So that would be an example of another view. Uh, I personally think the gifts are still active because I think the gifts are still bringing people to salvation. I don't think they're nifty little tools that we just have in our spiritual tool belt, but I think our God is about saving people. And if causing a season of healing is going to get a bunch of people saved, then I think that happens. Uh, I think the lack of those sort of healings may be an indictment upon the hardness of people's hearts and that it wouldn't matter if they happen because nobody's going to come to salvation through it anyway. Uh, and then also we see God's blessing in the slow healing. So it is exciting, miraculous healing in the moment, laying on of hands. But then also medicine's great, and our, that's our Lord too. And that brings glory to our God too. So maybe help the people, help your group think through these different views and the prices to pay on each. So let's say you are a cessationist. Then are we limiting God's power in some way? Are we cutting ourselves off spiritually in some way? Let's say everything's still active um, in a wholesale understanding. Then are we guarding well against the idea of the canon being extended? Are we guarding against the idea of a global message coming down to an individual for a community that then ought to be listened to by believers all over the world? So in other words, are we guarding against new revelation that's globally binding upon us as believers if we're continuationists? And then the views in the middle, they all have prices to pay. Every theological decision has a price to pay and a consequence that flows out of it. And we as group leaders need to be helping our group members think through what those costs are and um, and if it's worth it or not. Like, does it bring more glory to God or not? That's sort of the backstop question that we all need to answer. So the last thing I want to talk about today is a an extension of the five-year vision is our values as the people of God in this local community. And we have five of those values that I'm going to talk about repeatedly week to week. And one of them is gospel first and always. And the text cited there is Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. Um, when I think of that text, I actually think of Mark 8.38 as well. So I guess maybe it's the shame language. But I think in terms of the gospel and the shame there in Mark 38 is talking about taking up your cross, following Jesus. What is a prophet of man to gain the world? And then 838 of Mark says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. 
So if we're ashamed and think in terms of gospel conversations, think in terms of people you're called to be discipling, are you inviting those people into your life, those persons of peace to whom you're called to disciple? Think about the people in your workplace. Think about the people on your ball team or uh, the people in your neighborhood. Are we ashamed of the gospel with them? If we are, then the Son of Man is going to be ashamed of us when we come into glory. And we don't want that. And we don't want that for our people either. So are we equipping our people with the gospel first and always so that they will be bold and unashamed to present the gospel to their neighbors and nation? Well, we say where they live, work, and play. So in all spheres of their life, those people with whom they have influence, are they being a gospel influence for those people? And that's significant because, again, all of this is about that missionary sending in Acts 13, but that missionary sending in Acts 13 comes from that year-long teaching in Acts 11, right? So I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat it again. Acts 11, second part of verse 26. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught large numbers. And then that was the genesis of the Cyrenaeans and the people from Cyprus who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks. And what were they speaking? They're proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. So we have the initial gospel message going out, people in Antioch converging, and then Barnabas and Saul eventually get there and they teach for a whole year, presumably just teaching gospel. And then the consequence of all that is that we have this missionary sending in Acts 13. So the gospel has to come first. The gospel has to come always, and we cannot be ashamed of it. So the question is, are we as group leaders equipping our people to be able to share it? Can they share the gospel story? Can they share their personal story of how the gospel has changed their life? Can they can they tell the story of God? Now, let me be clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you got to have an altar call at every single group meeting you all have at every single group gathering. You don't need to be you know, calling people to uh to make that personal decision per se but i think in terms of the road to emmaus where jesus is there with the two men doesn't reveal who he is to them uh but then he begins to uh, so they're stunned you you even heard what's going on in jerusalem are you the only guy who doesn't know about this and then jesus unpacks the scriptures for them showing how the law and the prophets all point to him so there's spirit there's biblical warrant for saying that messiah that Jesus's person and his work, the plan of redemption is present in every text of the Bible. So in just teaching these texts faithfully in their historical context, laying that before the community of believers, we ought to be representing the gospel. And we shouldn't be uh, timid in making those gospel connections to that. And so how will we do that maybe with this text? Well, no different than the story we told earlier is that we have a rebellious and a sinful people. Those are the people that kill Stephen. They stone Stephen to death. And God uses that very event to then send people to Antioch to preach the good news, to see these Gentiles come to faith, who ultimately send out Barnabas and Saul. And that just is the story of rejection, uh, redemption and reconciliation altogether there, where we have things good, so let's think in terms of the, the four-part meta-narrative of Scripture, which would be creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. And we see something like that happening in that in this little mini story here uh, of the grander story. So we have the creation of gospel community 
in Stephen in his work there at the church in Jerusalem. We have fall when Stephen is murdered because of his faith, which triggers persecution. We have redemption happen when the gospel goes out in Antioch and Gentiles then come to faith. And then we have restoration in the sense that um, Barnabas and Saul are sent out on a gospel mission. So we always see the grand meta narrative of the story of God within every text, really. And this one's just sort of teed up for it. It is even easier than, than most are to get it done here. Uh, so we always ought to be teaching gospel because gospel just is scripture. And if we're unpacking the scripture well and we're faithful to the historical context and faithful to the theology, then we'll be teaching the gospel to our people. And so the very final thing that I want to mention is how God uses evil. And I opened talking about the sovereignty of God and using this persecution of Stephen, the persecution of the Jerusalem church to bring salvation to those at Antioch. And that's the God we have. Um, As I engage with atheists and agnostics who particularly struggle with the problem of evil, they just say, look, how can a God who loves, and I mentioned this earlier with Habakkuk, uh, we could also bring Job into the mix um, even Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to be saved because he didn't think they could repent and he didn't like them. But the the problem of evil is a perennial problem and each generation has to wrestle with it. Uh, I think it's been answered logically in terms of God having overriding reasons for allowing evil, which we would say is to offer the freedom of people for genuine meaning and purpose in the world and then ultimately redeeming and reconciling more people to the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, it is a perennial problem that must be dealt with perennially. So we have to be equipping our people uh, to defend against the problem of evil. And, and if I just gave you three, the big three apologetic issues that I deal with the most as I interact with our culture here. And so this is me at the Brentwood campus and dealing with a lot of the college students that I talk to and, um, and others is going to be the problem of evil, Christian particularism, that is to say Christ as the only way. Not one of many ways, but the only way to salvation. And then the historical resurrection of Jesus as, as an actual historical event and looking at the Gospels as historical documents rather than inspired revealed truth. So those are the three apologetics that happen the most for me as I'm, as I'm engaging people. So there's much fruit to be had and much value in preparing your people to deal with the problem of evil. And our story today is conducive as a way to teach them about the problem of evil because here's what we have to do with the atheist and agnostic we have to challenge them to come into our christian home by that i mean well yeah invite them into your home feed them share faith with them but i mean it more figuratively is that what happens is these atheists and agnostics stand out on the street figuratively and throw rocks at the christian house and say, oh, you, your God can't be loving because look at all the evil. Your God can stop all the evil but doesn't. Uh, there's no reason to believe in your God. It's irrational because of all the suffering and misery in the world. And I usually respond to them, and this takes them off guard, is, um, you know, if I didn't believe in immortality, if I didn't believe in a personal God who was personal God who was reconciling the world to himself, then I'd be right there with you as an unbeliever. But you can't stay outside of the Christian worldview and then tell me there's a problem with the Christian worldview. You need to come into my home, adopt my assumptions, and then tell me if there's a problem. So if you do that and you find an inconsistency in the faith, then all right, we can have a discussion. But once you step into the Christian home, you expect evil to happen. Why? Because you have a God who allows free creatures to make choices for genuine purpose, genuine meaning, 
uh, you have immortality so that justice is being served, even if it's not served in the midst of this life. And then you have a personal God who's reconciling the world to himself. Um, think in terms of Peter, where the Christians in Asia Minor are being mocked because Jesus hasn't returned yet. And Peter says, well, the reason Christ hasn't returned yet is so more people can get saved. God is delaying so that more people can hear the gospel and more people can come to salvation. There's a larger kingdom, a larger kingdom family at the uh, end of days. So once you adopt these Christian assumptions in this Christian worldview, we come to see and expect evil in this world because of our rebellion against God and our fallen natures. But we also understand that God has redeemed it, overcome it, and given us a chance to be reconciled to him for eternity. So we have to challenge them. Hey, um, adopt our assumptions and tell me if there's a problem. Now, you still may hate the faith, and that's fine. But now you can't say there's a logical inconsistency with it. Because within the assumptions of Christianity, uh, evil is dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So prepare your people, equip your people to deal with the problem of evil. Because not only are they, may they have to answer it in terms of someone else, but they're going to deal with personal evils and personal struggles in their life. Um, I mean, Stephen, a faithful man of God, was killed. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. But when we come to understand that what God is about is redeeming people, God is not about extending our lives indefinitely in this sinful, fallen state. God is about reconciling the world to himself and maximizing his kingdom. And so we see Stephen dying and we're horrified that he was stoned because of his faithfulness and say, God, that's not fair. But look at what happens because of it. It triggers persecution that sends people out from Jerusalem to Antioch to preach the gospel and massive numbers of people get saved to the point where they're now ascending church, sending out missionaries who then go on to spread the gospel and multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes more people are saved. So that's the way our God works. That's who our God is. It's not about the the light and fluffy, uh, the light and fluffy, make everything okay and comfortable today. Our God is about getting people saved. And we as a submissive kingdom people are about that business. And we're about doing whatever it takes to make that happen. For we as group leaders, it means that we do the tough work of exegeting and understanding the scriptures so that we can teach the word to our people. It means that we're inviting along a couple of people to learn how to do it so that we can reproduce our faith in them and reproduce our groups through them. Um, is that we are a people that understand uh, the deep dive, the seriousness of the calling to make disciples with Jesus. And we do that through teaching. So may we be faithful to our one year, two year, five years, 30 years of teaching. We see what at least one year of teaching brought about in Antioch. So who knows what that's going to be for us? Um, who knows what uh, mundane decisions we're making today like Peter made? You know, we got to be about gospel preaching. We can't be worrying about organizing food for these widows, uh, which ultimately leads to the salvation of tons of people in Antioch. What decisions are we making right now that are going to manifest that way in a year, two years, ten years? Pray about those things. Think about, dream about those things. And let's just chase those things as hard as we can through a deep dive and a faithful exposition of the text of God. Let's be a place where people come 
to develop deep roots about what it means to believe and follow Jesus, to be changed by him, and to live on mission with him. Those are the kind of disciples we want to be. Those are the kind of disciples we want to make. And we're thankful that God allows us to do it through the teaching ministry of the church.